Good afternoon, church. Let's stand and let's pray before we get into God's word. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We come before you right now and we pray, God, that you would speak into our hearts, God. I pray that we would hear your voice, Lord, that we would see you, that we would know you. Lord, we ask for this spiritual miracle that only you can do. We thank you, we worship you, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. January 6, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, after an important speech to Congress, shared his vision for the world after the war in Europe would be over. He spoke of four basic freedoms that he saw all people across the world needing, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want or lack or need or poverty, and the freedom from fear. Of course, the war did not just end up staying in Europe, but it became to be known as World War II, and the world never ended up achieving the president's ideal vision for the world. However, had we even achieved as humanity all four of these freedoms, we would still not have the most important freedom that there is to have. What is that freedom, church? Freedom from what? From sin. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for answering. Freedom from sin. And we're going to be in John 8 today where Jesus talks about that. Just to give you a quick recap of, of where we're at in John. John 1 and 2, introduction to Jesus, his ministry. John 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus as he comes to him in the night. Remember, that was very symbolic. That's compared and contrasted with John 4, where Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in broad daylight. She gets saved, tells others about Jesus. John 5, Jesus heals the cripple by the pool uh, on the Sabbath. John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and teaches on I am the bread of life. John 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for a feast called the Feast of Booths, which is the last feast that the Jews have in their year. He does a lot of teaching in John 7, and then in John 8, we read how they brought an adulterous woman to him. And then after that, Jesus continues to teach, and that's where we find ourselves today. John 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever practices Sin is a slave to sin. So think with me, church. If the truth is what sets us free from sin, what enslaves us to sin? Lies. Lies. Amen. Thank you. Lies. Because that's the opposite of truth, right? And right here, we have a very, very important takeaway. Just like etch this into your brain. This is a very important point and apply it to your life. Think about this as you experience your week to week. Behind every sin in our life is a lie. A lie about God, a lie about the world, a lie about 
ourselves. Behind every sin is a false belief. The root of every sin is a lie. Do you remember when in the garden, in the perfect world, the serpent comes to Eve, right? He doesn't just come to her and say, says, hey, do this bad thing, right? Do this sin. No, first he says, well, first he casts doubt. He says, did God really say? And then after she had doubt, then he goes in with the lie. And he says, you will not surely die, right? That's the lie. So notice, theologically, the lie comes before the sin. The Bible constantly refers to the devil as the deceiver, right? In that very same chapter, John 8, which we're in today, Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies, right? Because that's what he uses to enslave us. So the question is, what are some lies that lead us into sin? And not just lead us, but keep us enslaved and bound to sin. The first lie is the lie that was told to Eve in the garden, that there will be no consequences. That's the first lie. There will be no bad consequences, right? You will not surely die. Nothing bad is going to happen, right? Stop overthinking it. Stop exaggerating. In fact, it's going to be good for you, right? That's the first lie. And we experience that, right? We, we think this thing's going to be good for us, but we end up realizing later it was bad. The second one is like it, but it's more subtle. It's got a little bit of truth mixed in, but it's still a lie. And the second one is that the consequences won't be that bad. In other words, yes, I know it's bad. I know this sin is bad. And this is where a lot of us find ourselves, don't we? We know it's wrong, but we still keep doing it, right? It's like smokers who know that smoking is bad for their health, but they still keep doing for some reason, even though there's so many negatives to it. Why? Because the lie, the subtle lie behind these sins is that, yes, this sin is bad, but in some weird way, it's worth it. In some weird way, there are more benefits than there are negatives to this sin. And we tell ourselves that this sin, it's not that bad for me, right? Like smokers, right? Or maybe we tell ourselves that it's not so bad as long as I don't get caught, right? Like if I don't get caught, then it's worth it. Or, or, or maybe, it, you know, the consequences aren't that bad, right? Anger, pride, jealousy, gossip, everybody struggles with that. So it must not be that big of a deal. Or maybe we tell ourselves that the lie doesn't have that many bad consequences for others around us, for our loved ones, right? I'm hurting just myself. This is my decision, right? This is my choice. I'm hurting mostly myself. The excuses that we tell us. But in reality, what we do is we close our eyes to the pain and, and the, the misery and the sorrow that my sin brings to my loved ones because I'm so in love with the benefits of my sin. And maybe we've told ourselves that this sin, it's not so bad before the presence of God. Maybe we've convinced ourselves, church, that God, he doesn't care. How could he care about something so small, right? Like, does it really make a difference to him? You could almost hear the serpent whispering that into our ears. 
Does he really, really care? He's in charge of this whole universe. He's managing everyone and everything. Does this little tiny sin, does he even notice it? Does he even care? There's so many worse people in this world. Does God truly actually care? Or maybe you've been in your sin for so long that you've convinced yourself that God just doesn't even see your sin, that maybe he closes his eye to your sin, or maybe you think that he just doesn't even exist anymore because you are so in love with your sin. Church, it is a lie that our sin only hurts us when we get caught. It is a lie that any sin any single sin could ever truly bring us more benefit than negatives, right? It is a lie that our sin doesn't affect other people. It's a lie that it doesn't affect other people as long as they don't know about this sin. It's a lie, church. It's a lie that even the smallest sin is not a big deal in the eyes of God. It is a lie that God is so overwhelmed with managing this whole world that he lacks the emotional and mental capacity to care about the smallest details of my life, church. That is a lie. We have a God who is ever-present, who, who, before whom we live, whether we close our eyes to him or not. And he knows all things, and he is intimately involved with all things. Church, it's also a lie that God compares me to other people when he wants to assess my moral condition. It's a lie. God is the standard of righteousness and his perfection. It is a lie that if you committed only one sin, Jesus wouldn't need to have died for you, for me, because of one sin. It's a lie. The third lie that we tell ourselves that leads us into sin, and in fact, it enslaves many, many people into sin, is the lie that I can stop at any time. There are people who treat sin as if God, treat God as if he is, who played Monopoly here before? Okay, you remember the little orange card, get out of jail free? Was it orange or yellow? I forgot. Orange, right? Get out of jail free. And there are people who get this card and they hold on to it and they call this card repentance. I could use it at any time, right? I recently seen a guy, of a, a video of a guy sitting on, you know, some sidewalk in some busy city. This guy took some, like, ferret, uh, heroin or fentanyl or something, and he's high out of his mind, right? And this guy comes up to him, and he's recording him and says, hey, are you okay? And, and the guy can't answer him because he's so high. He asks him three times, he's like, are you okay? And he can't respond to him. So he lays him down on the ground. He gets this stuff called Narcan, and he puts it in his nose. He sprays it into his nose. And within, I don't know, a couple of minutes, this guy like sobers up, and he comes back to himself, and he says, look, you almost died. He says, wow, wow, you almost died. I saved your life. When I seen that video, I was like, wow, that is amazing. Narcan just saved this guy's life. I start reading about it. I'm like, man, I should carry some around with myself. You know, maybe I'll see somebody overdosing. I could save their life, tell them about Christ. Like, what a great testimony. It's not that simple. I start reading about it, and 
in all the comments and in all the articles, they say that usually, most of the time, people get really mad at you for giving them Narcan. They get really mad at you for saving their life. You know why? Because it instantly kills the high. And it puts people into instant withdrawal, meaning they get negative effects right away. And, and, so, and so I was reading this story of this, these people. They seen this couple, this man and this woman. They, they did some kind of strong drug, probably fentanyl. And she, was, she took so much that she was laying on the ground, just pale, like about to die. And they're like, we got to save her, right? And as soon as they come up to her, the man just starts yelling at them, get away from her, get away. She's still breathing. And, and they don't know what to do, right? They see this person dying. They have the thing to save this person with, and, and, but, but they don't want it. And so they're, they're, they're confused. They're stuck. We look at these people, you know, and you think, man, they're gambling with their life. They're coming up right to the edge of life and death just to get a little bit better of a high, right? And I'm, I'm certain what they're thinking in the back of their mind is, well, if anything, I'll use Narcan or someone else will give me Narcan. They'll see me and they'll save my life. And I know for us who don't struggle with that, it seems so foolish, doesn't it? Like, why would you gamble with your life just to get a little more high? But let me ask you this, church. Isn't that exactly what every single sinner does who tells himself, I can stop at any time. I want to enjoy my sin to the maximum. I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. And then when my last time comes, when my time to, to step into eternity comes, then I'll just, I'll, I'll make peace with God because he'll accept me at any time, right? Like the, the door of salvation is always open, right? Church, God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. God is not a bottle of Narcan. God is a person, a person, a, a personal being who knows and sees and feels all things. In fact, the word of God warns against this. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're telling yourself that I can stop at any time, let me ask you this. How do you know that God will not kill you in your sleep? How do you know that? Where's your guarantee that someone's going to find you and administer that saving dose? How do you know that? Is it worth the gamble? I'm not, I'm not telling you scare tactics. I'm trying to get you to think about reality and truth. God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. God is a person, and he understands exactly the game that you are playing with him. And he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. So I call you to repent. I urge that you turn to him, that you leave your sin. Come to Christ. Be free. 
Come out, pray with us now. Stop the sermon, stop the service. We will rejoice, rejoice with you in you finding that freedom. The fourth lie that keeps people enslaved in sin is the complete opposite of the third lie. It is the lie that I cannot stop. Maybe you tell yourself, people don't change. I can't change. It's just my genetics. This is my biology. This is just the family I grew up in, the home I grew up in. You don't know. I'm just too much like my dad. I'm too much like my mom, right? I'm too addicted. I've been living in this sin for so long. The sin is too strong. The sin is too deep inside of me. There is no hope for me. Church, that is a lie. That's a lie. Because the Bible says something completely different about this lie. You know what the Word of God says about every temptation that we face? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I know we talk about it often because it's so important. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Church, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Meaning, what the Word of God says to us here is true about all temptations that we face. First of all, he says it's not something that's uncommon to man, right? He's saying there's nothing new. There's nothing special about the temptations that I feel I can't overcome, right? There's nothing unique. People have been overcoming this temptation from the very beginning, and people are continuing and will continue to overcome the temptation that I feel I cannot overcome. Since at least 1886, so 1886, people have been seriously trying to run the mile under four minutes. Like that's been a goal, right, for many runners. Only in May 6th, 1954, a man by the name of Roger Bannister was able to run the mile under four minutes. It took 68 years, at least 68 years, to break that record, that barrier, right? Now, let me ask you this, just a little question. When do you think the next time somebody broke that record was? How many years later? 50 years? Lower or higher? Lower. 30? 20? 5? 46 days later, someone else broke the record. A year later, three people in a single race broke the record again. You see, the four-minute mile, it wasn't just a physical barrier. It was a psychological barrier. Everybody just thought it was impossible, right? This is something new. This is something unique. This is not something common. But as soon as that barrier was broken, everyone's like, well, it's possible. It's been done before. And they started breaking that record over and over again. And that's what the Word of God tells us as an encouragement. That what you're facing, it's common to man. People have overcome it. People will continue to overcome the same exact temptation that we might think is undefeatable. And the second thing that the Word of God says here is that with every temptation, God will provide a way 
of escape because he is faithful. His faithfulness is the reason for why we can have assurance that he will provide a way to escape with every single temptation. And the question, church, is do we believe that? Do you actually believe that with every temptation that comes at you, God is providing for you a door? He's opening a door every single time. Just like Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, right? There was a door open for him to run away, and he escaped, and he overcame. Do you believe that? Whatever it is that you feel like you get so trapped with that you can't actually escape, I want you to like replay that in your brain, in your minds, and realize that in every one of those situations, there was a door every time. Why? 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 How, how can we have assurance that there's a door every time, church? Why? Because God said so. Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And when we doubt that there's a door, we're ultimately doubting the faithfulness of God. God. So start there. Start with the belief, the truth in the faithfulness of God, and then you will believe that you can actually escape, and you will escape if you look for the escape that God sends to you. So are we going to believe what God says about our temptation, or are we going to believe what the father of lies says about our temptation? That we, we can't win, that we're stuck, that we're too addicted, that we'll never be Free. And the last lie is the lie that God has run out of grace for me. Maybe we believe that it's too late for me, that I am too far gone, that I have sinned so much after my repentance, after my salvation, that all of God's grace has been used up, dried up, and there is nothing left for me. Yes, God saved me, but I kept sinning and sinning. Peter, you don't know how I sin. In fact, I, I've sinned more after I repented than before, you might tell me. Dear brother, dear sister, and I say those words intentionally. My desire is to get our eyes off of myself, off of me, and raise them up to look at our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we didn't get saved by works, and we don't stay saved by works, right? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Romans 9.31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were based on works. Galatians 5.4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be or who desire to be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We fall away from grace when we try to save ourselves with our own good works. Church, faith is looking to Jesus. 
faith is trusting in Jesus, not my own good works after my salvation. Jesus didn't, church, salvation does not look like this. You're in the mud, Jesus comes up, takes you out, washes you, dries you off, puts you back on dry ground and says, all right, buddy, you're good, you're clean, this was your second chance, don't mess it up, I'm gonna be in heaven waiting for you, good luck. That is not what salvation is according to the Bible. We don't just get saved by Jesus in the beginning and then we're on our own. And now it's our turn to save ourselves. That's not what salvation is like. Christ walks with us, holds us. And we're going to look at that in John 10 in two weeks about being in the hand of Jesus and in the hand of the Father. And don't get me wrong, church. Yes, Faith without works is dead. Yes and amen. That is what the Word of God teaches. I am not saying that we should not live a holy life after God saved us and we can live whatever way we want. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about something different here. True good works will come after we look at Christ by faith. That's where the good works come. What I'm talking about here, lie number five, is those situations when people stop looking at Jesus and all they do is they look at their own good works. You cannot win looking only at yourself. There's only two results that you're going to accomplish. One, you're going to look at your good works and you're going you're gonna to be filled with self-righteousness and pride and look how good I am, how deserving I am of, of God's salvation. And maybe some of you are right here. But that usually doesn't last very long because then we lose strength and we stumble and we fall and then we look at all of our bad works and all we see is despair and hopelessness because we realize we can't save ourselves. Church, we must keep looking at Jesus with eyes of faith. Every day, wake up and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus by, with eyes of faith as long as it takes until you finally see him with your own physical eyes. We never stop looking at Jesus. Not now, not tomorrow, not in eternity. We always look to him. I know there's so many Christians who are stuck in this spiritual black hole because the devil has convinced them that their sins after their repentance have just used up all of God's grace available to them. But that is the enemy's main goal, to have us stop looking at Jesus to get people to stop trusting in Jesus and to get us to look at our own selves. But church, if all we do is we look at our own selves, we will never find a reason to be forgiven in ourselves. We won't. Just a spoiler alert. C.S. Lewis was once talking to a little girl and she asked him about assurance for salvation. He said, you want to have assurance of salvation? She said, yeah. She said, then look at Jesus. Look at him every single day, and you will have assurance of salvation. Amen, church? That is how we find assurance. 
There's a reason why the word of God calls the devil the accuser of the brothers. He has something to accuse us of. He really does. But the whole point of the gospel is not that we become perfect after we get saved or, you know, just, just little sins, whatever that means, right? Yes, we become more and more holy every single year. We grow in more into the image of Christ every year. That's what sanctification is. But the Bible never, ever says that we become perfect if you study in its entirety. If we read the book of Galatians, Paul says he had to rebuke Peter for living a life contrary to the gospel. This was long after Peter was an apostle, long after Jesus ascended. Like, you would think, like, Peter, you were, you were Christ's number one guy. You were the rock. You were supposed to be firm. Like, the one guy that shouldn't have messed up even after, you know, Christ restored you. You denied him three times. Like, you should have been firm. And he still stumbled. And God still gave him grace. Apostle Paul, near the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1.15, writes... The saying is trustworthy and full, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Notice he doesn't say of whom I was the foremost. Like I was a sinner and now I'm perfect. No, he's saying, if you look at the Greek, it's present tense. Ego emi, I am, right? Of whom I am the foremost. Paul's in heaven. I guarantee you that. Paul knew himself. He knew he was the chief of sinners, and yet God gave him grace. In fact, Paul knew he wasn't perfect. Even after walking with Christ for 30 years, even though God through him healed many people, even rose people from the dead, raised people from the dead, right? Thousands were saved through the preaching of Paul and yet near the end of his life, look at what he says, Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul himself, the, the super apostle you could say, at the end of his life says, I'm not perfect. But look what he does. Verse 13, the next verse. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. You see, the mature Christian is the one who understands he's not perfect, that she's not perfect, but they're always pressing on, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. It is the immature who, after seeing their imperfections, get so discouraged that they stop pressing on for some time, and they just sit there thinking God is done with them until God in his grace just rips you out of there, launches you out, Right? And he does, and I know that he does, and he will. But you don't have to get stuck in that. You don't have to get stuck in that hole. The enemy wants us to stop pressing on. The enemy wants us to take our eyes off of Jesus and look in ourselves. 
dear brother and sister, if you are still bothered by your sin, maybe you're depressed over the fact that you think God is done with you. Like you're just, you think you're condemned, you're done. There's no hope for you. That inner state of discomfort, that lack of peace, that sadness, that angst that you feel is evidence that the Holy Spirit still lives in you because he's not giving you peace where you're at in your sin. That's evidence because those who are spiritually dead, those who don't know Christ, those who don't have the Holy Spirit, they're just busy enjoying their sin. They're having a blast. They're living their best life now. They feel nothing towards God. Dear brother and sister, don't believe the lie that God has run out of grace for you. If he has forgiven Peter, who should have been firm, if he has forgiven Paul, the chief of sinners, if he has forgiven Moses for dishonoring God in front of the entire nation, if he has forgiven Samson, and we know how Samson lived, and we know how Samson died, if he has forgiven Lot, and if he has forgiven King David for sleeping with another man's wife and then killing that man to cover up his sin, then surely he can forgive me, and he can forgive you, and he has not run out of grace. But we have to, have to, have to stop looking at ourselves only. And we have to lift up our eyes to Jesus, who is our righteousness, who has finished the good work on the cross already every day. Every day, wake up. Jesus, I live unto you. I live by your righteousness and your righteousness only. Hold me, uphold me, Jesus. So, what's the solution? What is the solution to all of this? Is it facts? Is it just some sort of educational program? Is it just some kind of knowledge that you need to read somewhere in a book or online or some video? I want to turn our attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's two verses I want to look at. And pay attention to what I've highlighted. It says, Paul is describing... Unbelievers, he says, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And then verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice that the opposite of believing in the truth is not simply believing a lie. It's not. It's, the problem here is not simply ignorance. The problem is not just a lack of knowledge. They just didn't know. The Bible uses specifically emotional words, heart words, right? Like love and pleasure, right? They refuse to love the truth, not just not believe in the truth, or they did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They enjoyed unrighteousness, not just believing a lie. Church, this is really important. 
Because 10,000 pounds of facts cannot outweigh even one ounce of emotion, of the heart. In fact, there's a very interesting study that scientists did. They found, uh, so there's a group of people that had their prefrontal cortex damaged. That's the front part of your brain. And it's one of its responsibilities is to process emotion. They did all these tests on these people. And what they found was their logic and their IQ completely undamaged, right? Same IQ scores, everything, right? And, and initially you think, well, there's not anything noticeable. Well, what they noticed, these people had a huge problem they were incapable of making even the most mundane decisions in their life. So they could logically think through the decision. They can think through all their options and all the pluses and the benefits of going each path, but they could never actually take that step to make that decision. They, they were talked about a man named Elliot. He was a business owner, right? And, 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 but he couldn't, like, he'd get stuck in his room because he'd think, like, okay, I need to organize my folders, just something quick, right? And, he, and he'd just sit there and he'd think through, I could do it alphabetically. I could do it, you know, the opposite way. I could do it by file size. I can do it by date, right? I could do it all these ways. And he'd just keep thinking and thinking and thinking about these pros and cons, but he could never actually take the step and make the decision, even something as small as how to organize your files. And what that teaches us, what that tells us is that the logic is there to help us think through it, but it is the emotion that actually makes us take that step to that decision. You notice that the more you think, the harder it is to make that decision, right? It's the emotion. Church, the same thing applies in the spiritual life. No amount of facts can change us. Facts alone. Then the question is, what can? What can? As I call the band up, I want to read again from John 8, verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And you think, well, that sounds like facts, right? That sounds like knowledge. Until we read verse 36, four verses down. So if the sun sets you free... You will be free indeed. When Jesus says you will know the truth, he wasn't talking about some abstract idea of knowledge and philosophy and wisdom. He was talking about himself. Because in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. Amen. He was talking about himself, and he made that clear in verse 36. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, we find freedom not just in knowledge, not just in education, but we find freedom from knowing Christ, who is the truth. Not just a set of facts, but Jesus himself. Church, truth is a person. Truth became flesh and dwelt among us. And the name of truth is Jesus Christ. And I just want all of us to have our eyes on Jesus. Whether you've known him a big part of your life or you've never known him, look to him today and tomorrow and all the days of your life. 
True freedom, church, does not come from some sort of knowledge, some head knowledge. True freedom comes from knowing Christ, from being in a relationship from Him, with Him. It, it comes from loving Him and knowing that we are loved by Him. That is where true freedom lies. And yes, facts are a part of it. And facts come. I'm not talking about just pure emotionalism. But it starts with our relationship with Jesus. You will never find freedom through just facts. You will never. You can, I could tell you your whole life, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, don't do this, this is going to kill you, this is bad for your soul. Your whole life you could be hearing that and you won't change until you actually have a relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, and find freedom in him. So as we stand right now to pray, I want, I want to give you these questions for you to think about. What are the sins in my life? What are the sins in my life? Just keep that between you and the Lord. But these sins, what are the lies? Right? It's the tip of the iceberg. What's at the bottom? What are the lies that are upholding this sin? What are the lies that are maybe keeping me chained to this sin? And the most important question, am I bringing all of that to Jesus, who is the truth? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In you is real freedom. And I pray that we would come to you every day. I pray that we would never take our eyes off of you. That we would look to you, that we would love you, cherish you, behold you, follow you, be conformed to your image until one day we see you face to face in your full glory. Lord, for anyone who doesn't, has not yet come to know you, I pray that they would turn from their sins and they would follow you, not an idea, but the truth, you. Please, Lord Jesus, do this miracle of the new birth. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. We pray this all in your precious, precious name. Amen.